Corinthians. It's actually 4th Corinthians, okay? 1st Corinthians is 2nd Corinthians. And the reason why I say that is when you look at Paul's writings, we know in 1st Corinthians, there was already a letter that was sent to address some issues in the church. So there was letter one, we don't have it. Then 1st Corinthians, then 2nd Corinthians, Paul mentions a letter between 1st Corinthians and 2nd Corinthians. So that's actually 3rd Corinthians, all right? The point being is this, Paul put a lot of effort and time in trying to minister to this church. And they were really having some serious issues. And they're doing better now, but this is the fourth letter. And Paul's able to commend them on some things, but also he's having to still deal with some things. But I want us to focus on some key elements in this book that I think are going to be an encouragement and a challenge and carry us over into Romans, okay? So we're not going to go through a lot. We're going to focus on some key things for us. And the first one is going to be found in chapter 2, verse 5, okay? And this goes back to the issue of church discipline. And you remember that in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to write and say, look, you guys are allowing this guy and this gal, this man and his stepmother, to be living in immorality and sexual impurity, doing things that this, the pagans amongst you even frown upon, okay? So you need to deal with this guy and you need to remove him from fellowship and exercise church discipline so that he'll repent. And so they did. Well, now we're in a place where, and it's believed that this is the same guy that we're being, uh, is being addressed here, but Paul doesn't give names. Paul just says, hey, you know who we're talking about, and it's time to forgive and time to strengthen. And this is important because I said last week that the church is lacking quite often in church discipline. We don't want to lose members. We don't want to lose revenue. We don't want to offend. We don't want to be accused of being judgmental and all these other things. So we just kind of turn a blind eye, if you will, to sin within the body of Christ. But Jesus tells us that it poisons the body. Sin is that leaven that just permeates and causes so many problems within the body of Christ, weakening it, crippling it, hurting it. And church discipline is important, but there's another element that we see here where there's a lack of forgiveness and a lack of encouragement and building people up who have fallen into sin, okay? And you know, maybe you've been on the receiving end of this in your Christian walk, in your church life, where you've seen or you've been in a situation where you've fallen, you've sinned, and rather than being encouraged and built up and helped and supported, when you're repentant of that sin, you get judged, criticized, made to feel guilty, looked down upon. 
there's a good reason, unfortunately, that a lot of people say the church is the only group that shoots their wounded. Because we do. And that's kind of what was happening here. And Paul had to say, all right, you need to see this, this discipline all the way through to the reconciliation because that's what it's all about. So chapter 2, verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain, and there was somebody, and they knew it, causing problems, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. That church discipline, okay, that's enough. Good. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. The guy had repented. And the danger of not being forgiving and reconciling that brother or sister in the Lord is that they get discouraged. And there are a lot of people who leave the church because rather than receiving support and encouragement and help in our battles with sin, there's condemnation and criticism. And they're heartbroken and they don't want to be in that environment. And who can blame them? And so Paul says, look, you need to bring this guy back in. Love on him. Help him. He's repented. And see, that's what the Lord does to us. We see this in Hebrews. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves, not just to discipline us, but so that we'll repent. And then he can continue to work in our lives and bless us and build us up and do the things that he wants to do in our lives. So the church must do the same. Okay? So we need to think about these things and that when there's somebody in the church that's in sin, in love, we need to address it. And if need be, it needs to go before the body. And that's hard. It's uncomfortable for us, too. You know, not just the person receiving the discipline. But then that's the opportunity for repentance and helping them get back on the right track with the Lord. So we want to have that as a part of church life. And then from here on out, Paul is going to be doing a lot of defending of his ministry because false teachers were coming in and they were belittling him and those who were ministering with him and they were preaching a different gospel, okay? And so Paul is going to address that. But before he gets into it, he's focusing on the gospel and the purity of, of what it, the gospel is about and in chapter 5, verse 1, he's encouraging the body of Christ to focus on living for eternity, being heavenly minded, okay? And this is such an incredible passage, and I hope this really blesses you, okay? Look at this. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's our bodies, okay? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All right, that's speaking of our earthly or our heavenly body, our eternal body. For in this tent we groan. The older we get, the more we groan. Okay, so in this tent we groan. 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. All right? So Jesus promised us eternal life. A new body. We saw a glimpse of that when Jesus rose from the dead. Not flesh and blood, flesh and bone. Okay? And his body was spiritually energized, all right? A new body. And we will have a new body. And it will be an eternal body. And it's not going to break down and get worn out. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, all right? Now, this is what's cool. The word there for guarantee in the ancient Greek was a down payment, all right, here's your down payment for something that you have legal claim to, all right? Remember, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, that literally is paid in full. The price is paid. It's done. There's nothing left to do. And so because of what Christ did, we have a right not because of our own merit, but because of what Christ did to eternal life when we put our faith in him. And Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as that down payment. What's the guarantee that you have claimed to eternal life? Well, how about I put my spirit within you? That's a pretty good guarantee, okay? But this is what I thought was so cool as I was studying this. The modern Greek word, same word, but it's used now for an engagement ring. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to us. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are betrothed. One day he will come and take us to be with him. We are the bride of Christ. And when we think of engagements in our culture, you know, all you got to do is give the ring back and all bets are off. It's done, right? But not in that culture. It was a legally binding covenant. You actually had to get a divorce to break the betrothal. So this isn't some flippant thing. This is a binding covenant between Christ and us. The Holy Spirit being that engagement ring. You are mine and I am yours. Here you go. That is so cool that the Lord would do that for us, to put his spirit within us. And he goes on saying, okay, this is what we have. So let's make it our aim to please the Lord, the one who is our betrothed. So verse six, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, that's not the great white throne of judgment in the book of Revelation. This is the judgment seat of Christ where we will be rewarded. Remember, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. First Corinthians, Paul talks about, hey, don't lay up for yourselves wood, hay, and stubble, the things that are going to pass away, but invest in the heavenly things, okay, that you're going to be able to carry into eternity. And that's what Paul's telling us here. Live with eternity in mind. Live to please our, our bridegroom. And he goes on in chapter 6, he talks about us being temples of the living God. So in chapter 5, he's put the Holy Spirit in us as that guarantee of our legal right through Christ to eternal life. All right? That's pretty cool. So keeping that in mind, he says, all right, we're temples of the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit, the living God. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, he finishes that thought with, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. All right? So basically, let's keep the house clean. And as I read that, and you know, I'll... I'll go out to YouTube and I'll just see what's out there, you know, a funny video or anything, or I want to look at like a review of something or whatnot. And there's stuff on there that uh, dirties up the house. And we don't want to let that stuff in. There are things that we don't want to bring into the house of the Lord. I remember when I was young, we had a cat. And we lived out in the, in the boonies, okay? And the cat would always bring in dead animals to the back porch, or if he could bring them in, sometimes they'd get in the house, okay? And that's not good. And it's like, do I want to bring dead stuff into this house of God? Decayed stuff, impure stuff? No. And... If we ask ourselves, does Jesus want this in his house? I think we would really change the way we perceive the things that we allow our eyes and ears to take in. We're supposed to be different from the world. We are separate. And we're going to see in Romans that the aim of the Lord is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to be conformed into Christ's image, I don't want to bring in stuff that is not pleasing to Jesus. After all, he bought this house with his own blood. And I need to take care of it. So there's this exhortation here. You have the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. He's your guarantee. You're a temple of the living God. So keep the house clean. All right? And in 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of stuff about compromise and the flesh and the sin and all of that. And so it's just kind of addressing that again. Chapter 8 and 9, Paul is dealing with a 
financial gift to the brothers and sisters, particularly in Israel, who are suffering. And everybody else is giving and taking care of their brothers and sisters, but not so much Corinth. And so he says, hey, gang, look, I've been talking about how you're doing well and Titus has been saying you're improving and things are going better. Great. So look, have this thing in place so that when the, the brothers come to collect it, to bring it back to Jerusalem, that it's not going to be weird. Okay, be ready. Have a cheerful heart in giving to your brothers and sisters. And then from 10, 9, 10, and 11, he's dealing with still those who are attacking his authority as an apostle. So he's defending his ministry. And then he finishes up chapter 13. And I want to begin in verse 5. Because this ties into everything that we've talked about so far. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are temples of the living God. We need to live in accordance and this is how he wraps it up for the church in Corinth. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Okay, that's that same thought. You are a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is your your, your engagement ring, your guarantee. Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad that when we are weak, you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So, these false teachers are accusing Paul and the brethren of not being sincere, of taking advantage of people, of having a gospel that's not true. A lot of junk. Okay? And they're saying, look, we haven't failed the test. We want to make sure that you don't fail the test. And here's the thing, and I've said this before, and we'll see this in Romans as well. Just because a person goes to church does not mean they are born again. It does not mean they're a Christian and it does not mean that they're going to heaven. Keith Green made the comment, just because you're in a garage does not make you a car. Okay? And it's true. There are a lot of people who are in the church who have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They're called cultural Christians. It's what they grew up with. It's what they've known, born and raised in the church. But no relationship with Jesus Christ. So 
how do we test to see if we are saved? I have two things. One's from Alan Redpath. The other is from Spurgeon. And I think both give us a very good answer how to determine whether or not we're saved. All right. Redpath said this, to examine yourself, in fact, is to submit to the examination and scrutiny of Jesus Christ the Lord. To actually go before the Lord and say, Jesus, am I saved? There are things that Paul will talk about in the book of Romans. He talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the key elements to show whether or not we are a child of God is love for the brethren and love for Christ. John speaks of it in his epistle. It's like, how can you say you love God when you hate others, when you hate your brothers and sisters? We've got a disconnect there. How can we say we love Christ when we disobey him? That's what Jesus said. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Then how come you're not doing what I tell you to do? Well, you know, you really didn't mean that. We don't know for sure if that's what you really said. And all these things that happen in the church to try to excuse our sin. It's okay. God loves everybody. Yes, he does. Jesus loves people. Yes, he does. And there are also consequences for sin and rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in Romans. We need to examine ourselves. There are a lot of people, there are pastors who stand in pulpits that are not born again. We need to examine ourselves. Spurgeon puts it this way. Now prove yourselves. Do not merely sit in your closet and look at yourselves alone, but, put, but go out into the, this busy world and see what kind of piety you have. Remember, many a man's religion will stand examination that will not stand proof. We may sit at home and look at our religion and say, well, I think this will do. How are we outside of the church walls? Away from when the people around us in the church can see. How are we in our homes? How are we in the workplace? What do people outside the church say about us? I pastored a church, and I think I've mentioned this before, but it was very difficult to have a conversation with people in our community, a very small community. Our church was one of two churches in the entire community. And people just didn't want to come to church. And I couldn't figure out what the hang-up was. Before we were leaving, people in the community began to tell me what the hang-up was. Because people in the church, longtime members of the church, 
and leaders of the church acted in a way that was less than Christ-like when they were in the community. They were being hypocrites. They were not acting like Christ. And so when I, in ignorance, is saying, hey, you know what? We've got this thing going on. Love to have you come out. Love to, you know, just bless you. And would you, would you want to come? No. It was because there were those in the church who were not living like Christ. And if people in our homes, ask, ask your family members, do you think I'm saved? Now that could be a loaded question, okay. Take it to the Lord too. But do, do, I, do I act like Jesus? They'll give you an answer unless they're scared. And if they're scared, that is a good indicator that there's a problem. Maybe not that you're not saved, but that your walk needs to improve and you need Jesus to do some house cleaning. What do your coworkers say about you? What do your neighbors say? We can ask those questions and it'll show an idea of where we may be with the Lord. And if it doesn't look good, we need to take the opportunity to say, Jesus, this is not looking like what I thought my standing with you is. So if we need to come to Christ, you know, it's okay if you ask Christ into your heart and surrender your life to him again. Okay, it's okay. You want to make sure this is done right. And so Paul is trying to wrap this up for this church that's really having some issues. This is what you have in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. You've got this junk going on. Clean house and make sure you're saved. It's important for us. We don't want to assume. Oh yeah, I go to church. I believe in Jesus. Remember, James says, well, so do the demons. And they're scared to death. Our lives need to walk the walk, walk the talk. If Christ lives in us, there is the power of the living God. We'll see this in a minute in Romans. To live the life that the Lord wants us to live with his help. And it's an ongoing process, but we're told in Scripture that one day we will see him face to face and we will be like him. It'll all be done. We'll be in heaven and boom, all our sin, our junk, all our hangups and everything, they're all dead. And we're with Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. So keeping that in mind now, let's go over to the book of Romans. And there's two things I want us to consider as we look at the book of Romans, okay? Understand this, that Paul has not been to Rome. And you've got this church, these believers there, and they have an understanding, a good basic understanding of the gospel. But Paul is now writing to give them a very thorough theological understanding of the gospel, okay? making this, okay, this is what the gospel is. But 
he is also addressing tension between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And this is very important for us to keep in mind because throughout this letter, he is constantly referring to Gentile and Jew and addressing that division and addressing unity in Christ. And so the things that are within this letter are connected to those elements, a proper understanding of the gospel and dealing with the tension and the bias between Gentile and Jewish believers. All right. So it begins chapter one, verse one. Paul says, Paul, a servant. The word there is bondservant. Okay, this is important. We'll see it in a minute. Bondservant. You choose to make yourself a slave to Jesus for life. Okay? You are giving yourself over to Christ willingly. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Now this hall has a Jewish overtone, okay? This matters to the Jews here. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." There's that typical loving greeting from Paul. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus being key to what we have in salvation. Going down to verse 16. Here's the good news. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So right out of the gate, he's dealing with, hey, this is for both of you. For in the righteousness of God, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now you remember in our study of the Old Testament, this is taking us back to the book of Habakkuk. That's where it's found. The righteous live by faith. Not works, not the law, by faith, all right? So this is something that the Jews would have gone, oh, I know where that's from. But it's the power of God. The word there for power is dunamis, okay? Same word where we get dynamite, okay? And dynamo, a power that makes things happen, a changing power an effective power, and that's what the gospel does. It takes us from death, spiritual death, into life. It takes us from physical death into eternal life. 
It takes us from our sinful nature and puts in us the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's life-altering, eternally altering of our lives. Okay? That's good news. But then, if you're going to give good news, you also want to give the bad news. All right? So in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Now the word here for wrath, it's the same word that's used when Jesus was angry. It says he was angry at the Pharisees when he healed the guy with the withered hand on the Sabbath in the... Uh, in the um, synagogue and you remember Jesus was watching them and they're watching him okay what's he going to do is he going to heal this guy on the Sabbath he better not heal on the Sabbath it's God's law you don't do things like this on the Sabbath and it says Jesus was angry with them the word here wrath it's a anger that you have to have you must have because your righteousness is such at a high level that this kind of unrighteousness absolutely angers you. It has to because of how righteous you are. And so here's Jesus angry at the Pharisees because they're not following God's law. And rather than caring about this man who is in need and who needs healing and it's an opportunity for a blessing for him and God to be glorified, they are hung up on whether or not to heal on the Sabbath. And that's an ongoing issue that they had. They wanted to kill Jesus. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to kill him. He was a Sabbath breaker in their mind because they had a skewed view of what the Sabbath was all about. And so God is so righteous, he has to deal with sin. There is that righteous anger he has towards unrighteousness. And so the gospel is good because we're going to see that because we're all under sin, that judgment is for all of us. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if we go to chapter 3, verse 21, we look at how God does this through Christ. And actually, let's go, let's go up to uh, verse 20 okay, of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? The law doesn't make us righteous. It just shows us our unrighteousness. It shows where we fall short of God's law. Paul says later on, I forget which, which epistle it is, but it's, it's the uh, schoolmaster to point us to Christ. It's like, hey, look, you are a sinner and you're facing the wrath of God, so you need Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. It cannot justify it shows that we need somebody to justify us. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
for there is no distinction. Distinction what? Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. Everybody is guilty before God. All right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus or in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? Now understand, when he talks about our redemption, the New Testament uses three words for redemption. The first is to be bought in the slave market. Okay? You're purchased in the slave market. And you become the slave of the purchaser. And it's used in what the Lord has done for us. Okay, he went and he dealt with sin. He paid the price to make us his own. The second word is to buy out of the slave market. Okay, and that's what Jesus did. He went and dealt with sin, paid the price, purchased us out of slavery. But when it says out of the slave market, what it means is that the slave will never be brought back to the slave market. There's not going to be a return where the master goes, oh, you know what? I don't like this slave. I'm going to take them back to the slave market, put them back on the, on the auction block. Jesus bought us out of the slave market. He bought us out of sin. He bought us out of bondage. And he's not going to go, you know, I really don't like you, Ernest. You know, you're just not really living up to the kind of person I wanted you to be. And I'm just taking you back and I'm going to leave you under sin and Satan. I'm, I'm done with you. He's bought us out. And the third one is this one here. It's bought out of the slave market and given your freedom. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He bought our freedom, and we have the choice to become bond slaves of Jesus Christ. I don't remember, I don't remember who it was. Forgive me. And it's one of those, there's a story, all right? But it was a person who was bought by, I believe they were, a senator or something way back, you know, in the early years of, of uh, our country. But he was purchased, and then he said to his, his new owner, what do you want me to do? And the owner was, I want you to do whatever you want to do. You're free. And the slave was like, I'm free? You mean I can do whatever I want? Go wherever I want? Yep, you're free. I have purchased you. You are free now. And the slave's response was, then I want to go with you. And I want to be with you because you've treated me so well. And that's the kind of picture. Jesus paid the price for our freedom from sin. And as a bond slave, we go, I'm free. 
you've paid the price, yep, then I want to be yours. I want to be with you. I want to stay with you. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. That's a bondservant. The Lord did this for us. And when it talks about passing over sin, it's a term that basically is this. Back before him, before Christ came, it was salvation by faith. Abraham's the illustration of this. On credit. And Jesus paid the price on the cross. Okay? So God didn't go, well, you know what? Sorry, Jesus hasn't come yet and paid the price, so you're going to hell anyway. Too bad. So sorry. Uh, just haven't, if, if you'd come 100 years later, you would have been okay. No. Anybody who put their faith in the promise of the Messiah to come and follow the Lord, it was on credit. Every time they offered sacrifices, they were acknowledging their sin. They were coming in faith to the Lord, and it was on credit. And then Jesus paid once and for all the sins of everybody. Okay, the propitiation, the one acceptable sacrifice. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Down in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, or if, I'm sorry, the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the Gentile, who is the father of all. So it's all of faith. It's all of the goodness and grace of God. And he goes on and he deals with some other things, but in chapter 8, He talks about living in the spirit and the things that we have. There is therefore, verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul is saying, look, Jesus paid this. Jesus did it. And so he paid for our sin and we are made righteous because of what he has done for us. Going down to verse 12, 
So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We cannot do this in our own power. It's not by works to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry literally, Papa, Father, Abba, Father. So get this, because of what Christ did, we who put our faith in the finished work of Christ are adopted as sons, all right? Now, for years I used to think, oh, so we're adopted as sons, we're adopted as children. My sister, my mom and dad adopted her when she was six weeks old, okay? So when I think of adopting a child, I think of a little kid, all right? But that's not what this is talking about. Sons here are adult sons. And that's kind of weird in our culture, but not in Roman culture, not in Greek culture, okay? Has anybody ever seen, and I've, I've said this before, it's uh, Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. Anybody ever seen that? Oh, my word, only a few people. Okay. Well, if you want to get a good illustration of this, go rent the movie or get it on Netflix or whatever you can find it and watch this because it's a beautiful picture. Judah Ben-Hur, and I won't do a spoiler thing, okay, but... What happens is, because of some things that he did, he's a Jew. The Roman general that he, he saved his life, okay, he loved Judah. And so there's a scene there where it's a big party and everybody's there. And he brings Judah up and he says, I want to let everybody know that today I have finalized the documents to make Judah my son. And he takes his signet ring off of his hand and he puts it onto Judah's finger. And this was a common practice in Rome. So when that happened, Judah was given all the rights privileges and authority of the general's household as an adult son and heir of that household. And the Holy Spirit is that engagement ring, that guarantee, that promise. And so when we receive Christ as our Savior and what he did for us on that cross, we are adult sons and daughters adopted to where we can call God daddy and we have the rights, privileges, and authority of a child, adult child, mature child of the living God. That's incredible. We have so much given to us by Christ. And so in chapter 9, 10 and 11 really, 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with the issue of the sovereignty of God choosing how salvation will come. 
And I will not get into the weeds into this this morning. Okay, this is just when you read this, read it within the context of the issues between Jews and Gentiles and what it takes to be saved. Not the law, not works, not lineage. There are a lot of people in the church today who think they're going to heaven because they're a member of a church. My grandparents were members of this church. My great-grandparents were founding members of this church. You know, blah, blah, blah. So what? There's an old saying, God doesn't have grandchildren. It doesn't matter what your heritage is other than the heritage of Jesus Christ. Israel was hung up on their heritage. I am good with God because I am a child of Abraham. We're going to see that's not the case. I am good with God because of my heritage. Not the case. I am good with God because of the law. Not the case. God sovereignly made a choice as to how humanity would be saved so that it would be equitable for everybody. So, in verse 8, he's talking about the everlasting love of God. And he says, the familiar passage, you know, in all these things, because they're being persecuted, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38 of chapter 8. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he deals with what he knows is going to be a response. Well, Paul, what about Israel? You yourself are the apostle to the Gentiles. You're not going to Israel anymore because they've rejected Jesus. What about them? How can I be sure that I am secure in Christ and nothing's going to separate me from the love of God in Christ when we've got the Jews who are, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, cut off for a time, and we'll see this. How can I be secure? How can I know that God's not going to boot me out? So, Paul addresses it. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he's making it real clear. It's like, look, I love my Jewish brethren. And he's going to show that God's not done with them yet. He says, verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So in addressing this, Paul says, okay, this is what's going on. We have five minutes to do this, okay? This is what's going on. 
And I'll wrap it up in a nutshell here. Look, Abraham came by faith. And Abraham came by faith. Just because somebody claims the name of Israel does not mean that they are an Israelite. Israel means ruled by God. Just because they say they are of Israel does not mean they're ruled by God. Just because somebody says they're a Christian does not mean they're a Christian. First, Second Corinthians, okay? And just because they're of the line of Abraham doesn't mean they're of the promise. And he says, look, the promise is through Isaac, not Ishmael. The Jews' response, yeah, but Ishmael was illegitimate, you know, and yeah, we're of, we're, of Ishmael, we're of Isaac, we're of the promise, we're in good standing because of our heritage. So Paul goes, all right, let's look at this. Jacob and Esau, same mom, same dad. God chose Jacob, rejected Esau. It's not that he hated Esau, okay? He blessed Esau greatly. And we see in the Old Testament when it talks where Paul quotes, I hated Esau and loved Jacob. It's talking about the national people groups, okay? The Edomites and the Israelites, all right? He blessed Esau, but God chose to bypass the norm of the firstborn, Esau, to allow the promise to come through the secondborn instead. So you couldn't claim, hey, I've got the lineage. Lineage doesn't matter. What matters is the promise. Are you going to come by promise, by faith in Christ? And that's the thing that he's focusing on here. And we get so caught up in our, our rights. You know, I'm a good person. I go to church. I do this. The Jews were, I'm of the lineage. I'm of the heritage. I deserve it. It's all of faith. And Paul says, God put everybody under sin. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need to come to the promise of Christ. That way, mercy can be given to everybody. What if we had to come to Christ by jumping through hoops and keeping rules? What about people who can't? What if you had to have a great theological understanding of God? What about the person who mentally, you know, maybe they've got some, some uh, cognitive issues and things and, and they, they can't think like a scholar? What about the person who can't do and work their way to heaven? Maybe they're crippled. Maybe they're laid up and they can't do things for God. God leveled the playing field for everybody. You're all under sin. Don't rely on your works. Don't rely on your heritage. Don't rely on yourself. It's not of the flesh. It's of my grace. All you got to do is receive the gift of my son. Anybody can do that. We see little children baptized, right? Why? Because all you got to do is have the faith of a child. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Yes, I do. Do you believe that you had sin and Jesus paid for that sin? 
and, and you were wrong and, and God had to judge you? Yes, I do. And Jesus paid for it? Yes, he did. All right. It's so simple. The most simple of people can be saved. It's so easy. It's like, remember the Willy Wonka where there's the TV and there's the candy bar that's been shrunk down and it's in the TV. And, and uh, Wonka says to, to the two boys, go, you know, grab it. And the, the snotty little kid is like, ah, it's just a picture. And he says, oh, just reach in and take it. And so Charlie, he believes and he just reaches in and grabs the chocolate bar. It wasn't difficult. He just had to trust what Mr. Wonka said. And for anybody who wants to be saved, all they have to do is reach out their hand to Christ and take it. I believe what you've done for me on the cross. I believe I was a sinner, but you paid my debt and nailed it to the cross. I believe it and I want you and I'm surrendering my life to you. You bought me out and I am following you. It's that easy. And then, you know, just to wrap this up, okay, he goes on to talk about being a living sacrifice and, and all of that. And to live our lives in a way that's going to be a blessing to the world around us and to the, to the Lord. But wrap it up with this because it goes back to what we had in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. Verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As believers, let our aim be to build each other up. Corinth, they tore each other down. In Rome, the tensions between Jew and Gentile believers. Our salvation is in Christ. We are blood relatives in the blood of Christ. Therefore, let's love each other. Let's build each other up. Let's serve each other. God's glorified and we are edified. And that's his desire for us.